Hello, Guilty Feminist. This is Deborah. We're heading off to Australia and New Zealand, where we will be appearing live and recording an episode in Christchurch on the 11th of May, Auckland on the 14th of May, Wellington on the 15th of May, Adelaide on the 18th of May, Perth on the 20th, Sydney on the 23rd, Melbourne on the 25th, Brisbane on the 27th, and finally Canberra on the 28th of May. So get in and get your tickets now. They are going very fast. Please go to guiltyfeminist.com and just click on live shows for any of these events. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, Guilty Feminists. This is Deborah. I know it's not Monday, it's Thursday, but we've got one of our occasional culture specials. And this time I got to sit down with the amazing Eddie Izzard. And we filtered some of this conversation through Eddie's new film, Six Minutes to Midnight, which Eddie has co-written and stars in. It's about an English teacher in an Anglo-German finishing school on the eve of the Second World War. So many relevant themes. The film is released on Sky Cinema, on the 26th of March, the other writer is Kellen Jones, who you may remember played Kipper, the lovable bad guy in my film, Say My Name. And now please enjoy our multi-layered, gripping conversation about feminism, life and everything that I had with Eddie Izzard.
know the guilty feminist? Have you ever heard of the guilty feminist? I, I don't know the guilty feminist. Tell me of the guilty feminist. Okay, so I'll just give you a bit of context so we can uh, fashion the conversation into something that the the listener will make the listeners go, oh, we must see this film. Uh, so the guilty feminist is a podcast about our noble goals as feminists and our hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine those goals. Okay. Um, so it's basically saying, look, I don't know if I'm the best feminist because I have all of this hypocrisy and these other sides to me. And so talking at it from that space, that's basically how it started. So like, I'm a feminist, but I, I want to look good sitting down naked. Are those things at odds? I don't know. It doesn't feel like the good feminists want that. That's the idea. So we always start by saying I'm a feminist, but. So one, for example, that I just came up with this morning is um, I'm a feminist, but if I were in a loo and a public loo, and I on the way out, I saw that Pretty Patel was walking out, and she had her skirt stuck into her knickers. I wouldn't tell her. Right, but that I don't. I don't think that makes you not a feminist. And I think that makes you uh, a feminist, actually. I think. Well, there you go. There you go. There's often there's often hidden feminism in the "I'm a feminist" parts. I mean, it's not "I'm a feminist," but I but I killed a woman. It's not that. It's it's the it's the grey areas. You know, normally it would be a sisterly thing to do, wouldn't it? To go. Oh, I just need to tell you that. But with Pretty Patel, I'd make an exception. I'm a feminist, but if I were in a fitting room in Selfridges with Pretty Patel, I wouldn't say to her, if she was admiring herself in the mirror, that's really your colour, you should buy it, even if it was, and she should. I mean, that's how much I dislike Pretty Patel, because that's the code of feminism no one can ever break. That's a code of sisterhood right. that this must never be broken. I understand. Um, you see what I mean. So if you yeah. have any I'm a feminist but so you can think of any, please feel free uh, to chip them in. You don't have to have it now. But I might try and get one from you before you go. Oh, here's one I, I wrote earlier. I'm a feminist but if they said they would let me out of lockdown a day earlier than everyone else so I could get all my waxing and manicuring and blow drying done, I would say valiantly, no, I will wait for my sisters. Unless, of course... They could guarantee me no one would find out. And yes, then definitely yes. Thank you. I'll take that. Yes. Yes, please. I'm a feminist, but I can't stand fascist women. Does that work? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much my pretty Patel one. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. good. That's good. Uh, how do you feel about Thatcher? That's a good, that's a good one. Although Thatcher, yeah. I think Thatcher's such an exception. Well, Thatcher, her epitaph is... She said that Nelson Mandela was a member of a terrorist organization. And she said that General Pinochet was obviously her best friend. And he instigated the caravan of death and was happy to have people pushed out of airplanes at, at 20,000 feet. And so I'm a feminist, yeah. but Margaret Thatcher wasn't. Is that? Yeah. It's Margaret just... Thatcher, when she said women should stay in the kitchen, I mean, she was uh, a horrible person. Mm. A horrible person. Not all women are feminists. And also, Margaret Thatcher said outright she wasn't a feminist. But interestingly, Jerry Halliwell said when asked during the, the height of the, the Spice Girls' excitement, uh, must be mid-90s, said that uh, when asked who her feminist icon was as someone who advocated girl power, she said Margaret Thatcher. I don't think she really knew fully the full story. She might not say that anymore. We can't hold things. We can't hold people to everything they said in the 90s. That's one thing I feel quite strongly about. Yeah. I don't want to be held to everything I said in the 90s. Well, I'm happy to be held to whatever I said whenever. Are you? Mm. God. Really? I don't I don't mm. I just feel like this thing now when people troll through your Twitter and go look what that person said when they were 19. I'm like, thank God there was no Twitter when I was 19. 
Yeah, go for it. Uh, knock yourself out. Anyway. I, could have, I could have said anything. So to get into your film, yeah, because it's set in a girls' school, and when Kellen asked me about talking about it on the podcast, I was thinking, you know, how is this a feminist film and how is this a film that our listeners might be interested in? And it's inter- it is interesting because it's set in a girls' school just before the Second World War and the headmistress of the school is played by Judy Dench. So on the yeah. face of it, you'd think, oh, well, this is a film about girls and it's a film about Judy Dench as a headmistress. We'd all want that. Um, a Judy Dench leading us wherever we wanted to go. But there is a... There is a twist immediately as soon as you start watching it. This is no ordinary girls' school. It's based on a true story. It's based on a real girls' school that existed in uh, in Britain. Can you tell us about it? Well, it's based on true facts rather than a true story. There's a true story that World War II happened. That is absolutely true. Um, <laughs> even though I'm sure you could find some conspiracy theory people to say, no, it never happened. It was all because you know, it, it's getting so weird with, with that kind of conspiracy, nutty, you know, lies, trying to put lies. Well, Trump was a fake president. Just put a poster of Donald Trump, put fake president on it, and that covers that those four years. But this story uh, is based on uh, true facts that in Bexhill-on-Sea, a, a sleepy seaside town on the south coast of England, near Hastings, near Brighton, if people don't know. That. So um, just a south coast, you know, uh, town by the seaside. There were 26 schools there. Before the Second World War, it was an unusually high, unusual high quality uh, quantity of schools, and one of them was a girls' school called the Augusta Victoria College, and it, had, it was a girls' school. It's like a finishing school, and German girls went there to learn English and make friends with other British people, but particularly kind of British people, generally members of the aristocracy, um, but it could have been anywhere, anyone who was very right wing. So they were Himmler's who was head of the SS, his goddaughter was at this school. And von Ribbentrop, who was the German ambassador to Britain, his daughter was at the school, who was getting delivered to the school door by an armor-plated Mercedes with uh, German guards in Nazi uniforms uh, guarding her. And uh, this was going on. They were listening to Hitler's speeches in the school, and and, and then there would be Nazis saluting the, the, the radio set at the end of the speeches they were going up to London and hanging out in the German embassy and again a lot of Nazi saluting going on so these were girls who were very uh, affected by and, and linked to the German Nazi high command so that's the, the basis of the story it was there from 32 to 39 this school and um, we wrote a story that sits on top of it and we let our imagination run with that um, and I play a character Thomas Miller who comes in and uh, his father is German and his mother is English. And uh, the story unfolds from there. Um, so it is, it's a story of hearts and minds. And it, it, it would look, if you think about most war f- films, or this is a just on the eve of war type film, but you think it's, you know, it, it tends to fall into Germans, bad, British, good. But in fact, of course, this is not that. And that wasn't that even back then. It was just ideas are bad and ideas can be good good and bad ideas. Um, and Hitler and a number of simplistic right-wing politicians like to use lies. This was Hitler's idea. Why don't we just lie and then we'll use these lies as facts and we'll build our case and our whole argument for us getting elected upon this. And um, other people are doing that again, you know, 90 years on. So if we don't learn from history, we are doomed to repeat it. And this is a story, a lesson from history. 
should be the strap line for our film. Um, and that's what Six Minutes to Midnight is all about. That Yes, that's what I found really interesting about it. In the light of... I've also been researching a lot for a TV show I'm writing set in the 20s. And we have this idea in this country that's a bit of completely rewritten history that everybody was against the Nazis here and that we went to war specifically to defeat Nazis because we were so pro-saving Jewish people and we were so anti all of the the values that Hitler held. But there were so many anti-Semitic people in this country in the 20s. It's really hard to find a figure from history you love that wasn't anti-Semitic, that isn't Jewish. It's it's a struggle. It's possible, but it's actually a struggle. Um, Nancy Astor, who was our first female MP, I mean, I, I from what I've read about her, I wouldn't help her with her knickers in the back of a crinoline either, because uh, she wrote a letter to Joseph Kennedy saying, don't worry, Hitler is soon going to rid us of our global problem, meaning Jewish people. I mean, it wow. was it, people were so anti-Semitic. Clement Attlee? Clement Attlee, I don't know. I'd have to look into it. But the interesting thing about Churchill is because you know there's this now this sort of anti-Churchillian sentiment, completely understandably, because he was a white supremacist. But there's this idea that when people go down who voted Leave, who want Brexit, go down and protect Churchill's statue, they think Churchill is on their side um, because you know we didn't win the war for this, etc. But one of the things that I've been uh, researching is that Churchill actually left the Conservative Party over the idea of any border at all. And border force was first put up in this country, the idea of having to have a visa or show a passport and come in and go, how long can I stay for? That was established in the early 20th century, specifically because Russian Jewish refugees were coming here. And people were anti-Semitic. They didn't want Jewish refugees coming here. So they said, well, we'll build this Aliens Act, which means you can't just come here anymore. And Churchill was very against that. Um, idea. He, so yeah. much so he left the Conservative Party over it. He gave a big speech and said it's anti-Semitic and we're a country built on immigration. Churchill was very, he, he said we, we should join up with France when they got down to a, the really tough point when uh, the Nazi Wehrmacht was, was steaming through just because Hitler had been practicing for this war for six years. Um, he, he said join up with that and he knew that the whole idea that we fought this war uh, and we kept fighting wars in Europe on and on and on and on and on. If you go back through history, the European Union was set up to stop that happening. So uh, this has got totally lost down the back of the sofa. That is the point of, of what the European Union was set up to. So this whole idea that, that running and hiding from our own continent is going to really help, is just nonsense. But anyway, we're promised £350 million a week going into the NHS. So there's, uh, there's something. And what have we heard? A one, 1% increase on nurses' fees after they've done all this very hard work. Oh, my God. Is that devastating? Yeah, I can yeah. only assume the $350 million a week is going to arrive any day because I read it on a bus. Um, and the same people, people voted for Donald Trump because they read Make America Great Again on a baseball cap. When did we start? When does do the reading mean read passing vehicles or items of clothing? It's so uh, terrifying. How much of your decision to create this film? Because you did you co-write the screenplay or did you co-write the story? I co-wrote the, uh, both. You co-wrote the story and the screenplay. Uh, how much of your decision to write this material, to come to this material, was inspired by Brexit? Because obviously you're extremely and have been for many years pro-European. No, this story is 10 years in the making. So this isn't a story about Brexit. Brexit is, and, you know, Trump and Brexit are the same thing. And Trump said that many times, you know, that he's just Brexit plus. So 
you put all those together and it's, it's, it's obviously, you know, extreme right wing ideas, but they were happening around. This story is a story about uh, the school and the girls and the ideas that are happening back there. They just happened by the time that the development started, uh, which was about 2008, going all the way through up to coming out in 20, uh, being finished filming in 2018, that all of Brexit and Trump said that all happened on top of it. So just as like the, the politics that was spinning around in the world landed on top of the film coming out. So it wasn't done the, the way around as a reaction to anything. This was done, this was just a film that we wrote. And then simplistic politics decided to try and take hold. As some people said, let's try the 1930s all over again and see how that will turn out. Uh, well, that's very interesting. Sometimes you just hit a zeitgeist, don't you? Sometimes... Because I started writing this 1920s thing before the pandemic, and now I'm like, oh, my God, we're coming back into the roaring 20s now. Everybody's anticipating it because of the pandemic, that when we're allowed to be together again, there will be immediately be massive orgies and, uh, well, I, I suppose uh, formal sex events, I should probably say, formalised in, <laughs> invitation invited sex events and, and fashion. And uh, I absolutely imagine that. I can absolutely see coming out of lockdown and, and thinking, I'm not just going to you know, meet friends in the pub in any dress that I've picked up off the floor from the night before. I'm going to think about what I'm going to wear because I've only worn pyjamas for a year, Eddie. So sometimes you hit a zeitgeist. And I felt when I saw this movie, I didn't know you'd been working on it for 10 years. I thought, oh, this is in part a response to what's happening with Brexit and being very careful to look around and say, you plant these ideas in people's heads that somebody else is the other and the other is the enemy. And if you can sell that narrative, then you at the top can take all the power and all the money because these people down here are looking at each other and accusing each other and continuing to play out that narrative. And you can see in this film the way the girls are being educated. And I thought yeah. one of the most interesting scenes of the film was the, um, uh, for me, the most compelling scenes that I still remember and I saw it over a year ago, but um, is the girls being educated in the classroom about Jewish people, very specifically educated about that. Well, that's that's a Kellen. Uh, that's uh, that comes from Kellen. That was linking into the fact that my character that I'm playing, Thomas Miller, has got into a uh, a situation where he's been blamed for things, and so we dovetail that in with the the, the uh, instruction that happened, and it happened in schools very overtly as the schools were Nazified in in Germany uh, about um, demonizing different groups of people, particularly Jewish people. Um, but the, the Nazis just chose who to demonize. It's to them, these, you know, these particular people. So they didn't look Aryan. Now, the weird thing is that the Nazi party high command were the most un-Aryan-looking bunch of weirdos the world has ever seen. I mean, there's just not an Aryan one among them. So this was... Our, our story kept moving, as it does with scripts, as you'll probably know this with scripts, you know, just... You must know this was good. You know, we were driving in this direction, that direction. What elements stay in, what elements get cut out, what elements get filmed. Um, but that was a good way of making it spin around and having Carla Yuri's character uh, playing uh, their teacher, who's a, who's a German person, teacher, and had been at school before, being able to pull the girls to her away from Miss Rockwell, who is the head of the school and has been played by Judy Dench. So that's when it all starts to spin. And my and uh, Thomas Miller is getting into a very difficult place in his story at that point. Yes, because he sort of just turns up as this 
kind of kind of hapless substitute teacher or supply teacher yeah. really and gets involved in something he doesn't want to be involved in as you can imagine on the eve of the second world war the government would be very interested to know uh what the daughters and goddaughters of prominent nazis are saying thinking uh, what they know about what their parents are doing, et cetera, et cetera. So there is, of course, very a great deal of interest from the government in this school without giving massive spoilers away. So it's easy to see how somebody who might have started off as a bystander can get very involved in that to their own personal cost. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting about you doing this piece of material as well in terms of the increasing voice of the far right and the increasing othering of people you know, on this podcast, because we're a feminist podcast and we're trans inclusive, we're always struggling with how much anti-trans sentiment there seems to be on the internet right now and and how flammable that situation is. Um, you've been somebody who's been trans for many years and, you know, you're, possibly you're, the language of the subject has evolved, but you've, I think, been quite clear about yourself for many, many years. How do you feel about that situation at the moment? Is it okay to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think when I came out in 1985, it was toxic to be trans. Um, I was TV when I came out, uh, and the language has changed because TV and TS were the, were the terms. Um, but say you were TV, people could say you're, you're, t- you're a television. No, I'm TV. You're, you're television itself. No, TV is transvestite. We don't use the word transvestite because it's Latin and it's old and it's horrible and it's to- it's, a, you know, it's a toxic word. It's seen as a pejorative word. So we were then I started reclaiming the word and saying actually transvestite and executive transvestite. And I realized that transgender was the whole group, but there were 12 groups, groupings, as I worked out, of transgender. And then things changed and moved, and now it's transgender and trans. And, and so that's how things happen, just like with African American in, in America, um, the, the the language changed over the years. But there was a tipping point, you know, when I came out, it was, it was very toxic to be trans in 85. In 90, it was still toxic. 95, it was toxic. 2000, it was toxic. 2005, 2010, 2014, there was a tipping point in America. There was a, a series called Transparent, started winning awards. There were Laverne Cox, a black activist. She was totally nominated and got Woman of the Year, I believe, um, from Time magazine. And then um, Caitlyn Jenner came out in Vanity Fair or, or had a big front page splash in Vanity Fair. So that that changed the tipping point. And since then, I think it has been easier. I feel it's been easier to be out or to maybe to come out. I can't tell because I obviously came out, you know, so many decades ago. Um, but then if more people are coming out, then there's going to be naysayers. There's going to be reactionary people. There's people who want to go back to the 1930s and they they will complain more. So one of the expected, if you think about it, results of more people being out, more people feeling what they want to talk about it, get their mental health to a better position by getting that conversation going or or expressing themselves in a more open way is that more people will push back on it as well. Mm -hmm. I don't think, I think that's the thing that we have to go through. And I think uh, gay and lesbian people went through that themselves. Uh, When LGBT hits boring, then we've made it. So that's how it is. And why people are so obsessed about sex and sexuality is kind of odd because tigers don't care. Tigers really don't care if anyone's gay, lesbian, transgender. They, they just, they couldn't give a monkey's belly. And if a tiger attacks you, they really won't check before they savage you to death. 
very rewarding. Are you trans or gay? straight? Are you bi? You might do this. It's so pansexual. Well, you know, yeah, they don't give it. And we also don't care about tigers. We don't care. A tiger's attack. I think it's a straight tiger. It could be a gay. I'm not sure. Actually, it could have been male or female. You can't tell from the stripes. But you know, we don't care. So we get obsessed by it because whatever. Most most positive people aren't that obsessed by it. It's, it tends to be the negative people that are obsessed by it. And that's probably because of change. They want things as they were back in the, the third, like 1930s or the medieval period or some way, way back. And I'm afraid they've just got to get with the 21st century. It's the coming of age of humanity. Things roll forward. And um, it's. I think it's easier than ever to come out. But what some people also don't realize when, when they come out is that they, there's a 10-year acclimatization period where you've got to re-stitch your life as someone who has come out and things need to change. So you might feel that you come out that it's going to be a, um, a perfect life after that and you will have a partner, a job, and this or that, and, and, and your career will go fantastically. And that doesn't actually happen. You've still got all those problems that you had before, um, but you've just come out. So it's great to come out, but there is... I think some people have, a, 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 these, are, these are people who are LGBT people who come out, they, they get into a, 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 there's a trickiness for them in the, the period after they come out. So I, I know that people get into a tough situation of that. That's different to how people are reacting to it, but that's just their own thing that they have to go through. It's an Arthurian knight's quest. Coming out is like a, it's your quest. It's your Arthurian knight's quest. That's the way to see it. And you have to fight for it and you fight for your, new place in society but we are allowed into society now and margaret thatcher said society doesn't exist well it does and um it's just an extreme right-wing thing of um again they they seem to come up with this stuff that thatcher came up with and i think most people in the world do want to live in that live and i think covid has shown that that a lot of people will live in that live help other people some people won't some people will turn it into a conspiracy some people will just want to do riots and, and say they won't wear masks and do all this very negative stuff but that's that's what crises do i just think that it heightens the, the the positive people and unfortunately heightens the negative people as well as was shown in world war ii um i yeah that's a very interesting and comprehensive answer thank you one thing I want to say is that the coming outness and the language and the the nowness of transness does not indicate a newness of transness. One of the things I loved most, the season I loved most of Transparent, was uh, cutting back to their family pre the exactly the same period as your film of Six Minutes to Midnight, where they cut back to all the sec- the German sexologists, and there's actually a clinic where transgender people are able to play, and they're advancing the cause and, you know, sort of working out what it is and, uh, but creating a play space. And when you think about how queer friendly Berlin was before Hitler came and crushed it, and it was so fascinating to have those two spaces played in. Um, I want to change your vocabulary there and say he didn't crush it, he kidnapped it. Mm. Hitler kidnapped Berlin, he kidnapped the country, he kidnapped the people. Um, it was a criminal act, and he was a criminal, and they were all criminals. All the Nazis were just criminals. Exactly. So when criminals come in, uh, they just work by criminal rules. So that's the extreme right. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. 
And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Yes, indeed. And again, it's another sort of othering. It's like whatever's different. I'm developing a new theory about this that I think it's about what we can predict. I think when you were talking before about tigers, um, like my cat, if I come into the room, she won't bother looking up because she can predict what I'll do. But if a new person she doesn't know comes into the room, she can't predict. So she sort of sniffs around. If a dog comes in, she'll go, I can't predict at all. I'm off. And I think the reason we love the binary so much is we think we can anticipate. We think if people will stay within this binary state of what I know, And every generation scrambles the binary to one extent or another. So in the 50s, you scrambled the binary as a woman if you wouldn't wear skirts and you went and got a job. And, you know, there was a sort of, oh, we don't quite trust that. And then now it is completely normal in our part of the world for women to wear trousers and have jobs. So it doesn't scramble the binary when we see a woman running a company in trousers. But in the 70s, it scrambled the binary when men had long hair. And it was like, oh, long-haired hippies, oh, what are you going to do? You know, it's a fear of the other. It's a fear of the other. And anything that scrambles the binary frightens people because I can't anticipate what you're going to do. Hang on. I, I would also, I'd push back on your binary thing. I think it scrambles the status quo rather because I don't think it has to be binary. You know, we're having gay parents and number of people might struggle with that but we know that as long as one parent loves a child then that child has hope and i think as time goes on it will prove it so i don't know if it has to be the binary thing of male female it just has to be what has existed before you know when things change that's when people had the problem of it as opposed to necessarily being binary that's true anytime the status quo is disrupted we all freak out a bit and I would say that's the same with cancel culture. It's sort of like, you know, when people get frightened about cancel culture, I'm like, well, we're just all used to top-down power. We're used to Weinstein being able to cancel the career of a woman. We're not used to a load of women being able to cancel the career of Weinstein. So we're all a bit unsettled by it. We're all like, well, where is this coming from now? It's That is a disruption. But I think the particular nature of gender binariness being in any way scrambled, it just makes people go, I don't know, I think it's something like primal about, I can't predict what you're going to do. And as soon as that particular piece of the binary is eroded in society, we know, we just don't see it that way. And we don't see a man with long hair and go, that doesn't mean, that me- it doesn't mean anything to us anymore because it's been around for a while. And I think you did a lot to be visually, publicly trans. It did a lot. It did a lot because in the 90s or whatever, you know, you'd go and see somebody do stand up and they weren't respecting the binary norms and you liked their comedy so you watched it and i think it eroded some of the the fear that people had for transgender women i'm just following what women had to do um people bane people anyone who's not white male middle class i suppose has to how was i terming it just has to be ridiculously good at what you do Try and be try and be ridiculously good at what you do, because then they go, oh, this person is that, or oh, they're trans. Oh, well, they do their good comedy is pretty good, you know. And, okay, the draft is getting better. Oh, they run a few marathons, you know. So, um, particularly running marathons, um, I think, because I was trying to look for the. Well, here's an interesting thing. This is um, if you try and de- define. Have you ever tried to define 
masculine traits and, and feminine traits. Because if you, if you get it down to it, you'll find there are none. Hmm. There's actually, I think, none. There's one that if you have more testosterone in your body, you, you can build muscle mass easier. But that's, that's it. But you could say nurturing. Well, that's more feminine. Well, no, it's a very nurturing male. Mm-hmm. Design. Well, no, it's very good design males, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, athletes, that's a male. Oh, no, well, women are very good. Good fighters. Oh, no, women are in special forces now, and they always have been, you know, and the Russian women were great. And, and you, there's just nothing you can get to. You say, that is particularly the thing that only women do, only men do. And that's interesting. And then also you talk about binary. Well, it's XX and XY. It was never binary. It was always shared chromosomes mm. on, the, on the beginning of time. That's interesting. And we were all girls. We were all girls at, at the fetus stage. And then some of us got coded. Men have nipples because they could have been breast. Well, that, that's why when people say about, oh, well, what about Rachel Dolzell transitioning from white to black? How is that different? And I'm like, because she wasn't half black, but I'm half man because my dad was a man. So we're all, everybody is half woman and half man, unless, of course, you have a trans father and uh, a trans mother. But most people, or a trans... Unless you have a trans father and a, no, yes, a trans father and a cis mother. No. I can leave that you too. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Unless you have two dads, uh, two biological dads, which you could have. Uh, it, most of us are half man and half woman. And that's why gender, I think, is so much more fluid than race. One of the reasons why it's so much more fluid. And we all have in our role modeling and our society and the people we sit next to, we've all got this fluidity all around us and within us. And, it, you know, it would be lovely to be in a world where, Every child could see themselves reflected in their community and on the television, no matter uh, what traits they had, no matter how they felt, no matter how they identified, no matter what their gender expression was. Um, that's the world I would like to live in. And where our binary is no, we, we, we just don't have a respect for the binary anymore. We have a respect for the individual and we see people's humanity before we see people's identity. I think we have a way to go. But I also think, you know, when I watch Six Minutes to Midnight and I look at the way children are educated, it starts very, very early. No child is born a Nazi, but neither is any child born, you know, with any ideology. A Nazi is born a Nazi. No, everybody is a blank slate when they come out. They might have a predilection or a personality trait to want to share or want to hoard, uh, but most of us have both of those things in us, in truth. Yeah, that thing is, where, where does evil come from? And uh, the extreme right uh, are evil. They just seem to be, they seem to... It could actually just be that they don't have the empathy genetic, so they just can't load that in. But then Nazis did profess to, you know, if you take Second World War, they did profess to, uh, not profess, they did seem to like their own families or kinds. You know, you see footage of Himmler with his daughter. His daughter turned out to be a big Nazi as well. But um, Probably not yeah, a coincidence, to be honest. No, but you. but it's interesting, you know, I always wondered, and six minutes to midnight looks at this, would I, if I grew up in Nazi Germany, having lost the First World War, would I, you know, I was very much into being a Boy Scout. I was going to be in the armed forces. Um, would I have signed up for the Hitler Youth? Would I have signed up for joining one of the paramilitary groups? Would I have seen that this is bullshit? There's a guy called uh, Sebastian Hafner, Defying Hitler, a book that was put together by his son, because uh, he refused to, to bring this out, but he got out of Germany and was writing, I think, for the Observer during the Second World War. That's a German guy who got out, but he was a Protestant. Very interesting. 
So you could totally understand the Jewish people went to such, obviously, unbelievably hellish time. And if they got out, yes, absolutely, get the hell out of there in, in, the, in the 30s. But if you're a Protestant person and, you, and you've got no, no one's bearing down upon you and you say, this is garbage, this whole country has been kidnapped by this insane criminal Hitler who I think is going to become a mass murderer. And, he did, and this guy said, I'm, I'm getting out of here. Watch, uh, next time you watch Casablanca, Paul uh, Henride is playing Victor Laszlo. And Conrad Veit uh, is playing uh, Major Heinrich Strasse. He's the German bad guy who gets them um, doing, in, in, in Everyone Comes to Rick's, it's in Rick's Cafe, and he's doing some sort of German song and then up gets Paul Hen Henride, and he's he is Victor Laszlo, and he says, da 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 and then you got them singing that song. Um, very emotional moment, actually. Now the interesting thing is, we all hate Conrad Veidt and this this uh, Major Strassen, bad German person, and we're really into Paul Henride. They're both German. Both the actors are German. And Conrad Veidt said, stuff these Nazis, these are criminals, I'm out of here. So he left and got to Britain first, the actor. Mm. And then he, when Paul Henright said, I gotta get out of here too, Conrad Veidt got him out and got him in, you know, got a visa so that he could get Oh to my God, so they were both refugees. Yeah. Wow. And, and one of them helped the other out, but then they were playing opposite sides of the divide. One played the bad guy, one played the good guy. And obviously, uh, Conrad Wright, for him, he needs to play the bad guy as hard as he can because he's seen these guys, he's grown up with these guys, and also Paul Henright has, has as well. And I just find that fascinating that in that exchange, it's so emotional. And you hate this one guy and you love this mm. other guy. And they're friends, and one got the other one out, and they're both German, and they both think they're both it's political awful. refugees. Yeah, because they're Jews and hate the Ger the German Nazis, the Nazis, but not the Germans. They love Germany. Like my character loves Germany, and my character loves Britain because he's half German and half British. I mean, this is the thing. It's all people in countries. I remember meeting um, in the late 90s an elderly German lady in East Berlin who could remember uh, she was a teenager in the Second World War and went to university in Vienna when she turned 18. And she said, the first thing I did when I got to Vienna was join the Hitler Youth because my father wouldn't let me join when I was an adolescent. And she said, I would love to say now that was because of his politics, but it was because he was very old fashioned and didn't think boys and girls should socialize together. And that's where all the boys were. So I was like, right into the Hitler Youth. And she was like, it had nothing to do with, she, she said, I mean, we, I remember at school, you had to put your hand up and say Heil Hitler. But she said, I see American children saying, you know, I've pledged allegiance to the flag. She said, I didn't know what it was about at all. And she said, but I didn't, um, well, at the time I went to university, she said, when German people say we didn't know, we did know. She said, I find it absolute cognitive dissonance. She said, I cannot. She spoke brilliant English because she'd married an American and gone and lived in America for years. Um, and she said, I find it really weird. She said, it's like this. They go, oh, we didn't know. We didn't know. She said, yeah, we did. We absolutely did. She said, I remember in Vienna seeing people being taken away in the back of trucks with barbed wire around the top. And I knew who they were. Of course I did. She said, after Kristallnacht, everyone knew. She said, I don't blame myself for doing not doing anything about it. I was 18. If I'd said anything, I would have just got shot in the face. She said, what could I have done? But she said, we did know. And she said, I didn't know about death camps, but we didn't want to know. She said, I knew they weren't going anywhere good. And of course they weren't 
you know, Hitler wasn't going, oh, look how many people we've killed today and this is the condition of the death camps. But she said, we knew very bad things were happening and we all looked away. And she said, that's what I argue with German people now when they say we didn't know. And I think that piece is so salient to me and, you know, threading back to your film of what do we know and then what do we do about it? And we now live in an age where we know so many bad things. I can go on my phone and I can scroll through Twitter and I know a hundred bad things in a minute. And I can go through on Instagram. And I, there's this happening to refugees. There's this happening to people in Yemen. There's this happening to people in Myanmar. There's this happening to people in Texas. And what can I do about all these things? And if we feel we can't act on it, we end up sort of with all of this awareness and nothing, no activism, then we we get depressed. And we there comes to a point where we can't look at absolutely everything all of the time. But I do think the thing that I took away from your film is be brave, be bold, act before it's too late. Do what you can, not what you can't. Uh, but be more active than you are fearful. And you will want to look away. And your character is, in fact, sort of forced not to look away. But I suppose it made me question what kind of person would I have been in that situation? Yeah. As the child being indoctrinated, as the grown-ups who could see that it was wrong around them and could act, but it was a very frightening thing to act, it gets you to ask yourself, what would I have done? And then, by extension, what do I do now? Do I look away or do I, do I challenge things and do I do the things that I can do as I can do them? Yeah, I, I mean, behind it, there is the thing of, this is a lesson from history uh, said in a school, and um, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So, yeah, as I articulate, if lies are allowed to be a tool of politics, if you can just say, look, here's a lie, and um, vote for me because I'm saying that this lie is going to happen, I'm going to make this happen, and it's just a lie, or, or blaming people who haven't done anything. If we... We still haven't got a way of, of, of sorting that out, so that can't happen. We know that with Trump and what happened on the sixth of, of January, and you know, and Trump said he was Brexit, and Brexit was Trump. So what happened on the sixth of January is it's just a repetition of what went before. And imagine if if Hitler had got in for four years from thirty three to thirty seven, and then been uh, uh, had 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 a proper election there and been voted out, and all the rest of that wouldn't have happened. Mm. And Trump still in play. And right-wing ideas are still in play. And people who have lied and got away with it in politics and they're carrying on and acting upon it because half our country wanted, said, yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's leave. And then half the country said, no, let's not leave. And, um, and they said, with well, 350 million pounds, we're going to put it into the NHS. And then they said, oh, we're not going to do that. And we did lie about it. And we're just going to just not mention it ever again. And that, that, that's a kind of weird thing. So if we do not learn from history, we are doomed to repeat it. So that's what I want people to take away with. I agree. And I think it, yeah. And it, and it asks of you, what would you do? What would you do? And how easily would you be swayed either way? Um, yes. My, this is my guilty question. What's Judy Dench like to work with? Oh, she's always giving me a hard time. She's very fit. No, she's great. <laughs> um, she's uh, chocolate hobnobs and a glass of champagne. And um, uh, her favorite, her favorite drink is, is chocolate hobnob. And <laughs> Is a glass of champagne. Um, so she just, she's just a very young person. She has lived a number of years, but she's very young inside her. This is what I, I like about her. And when I was playing Victoria in, in Victorian Abdul, and I played, she played Queen Victoria, and I played her son, who became Edward the Seventh. 
and we we were both dancing to Ray Charles' track. What what I say? So what I say? And, and I'm I'm just dancing away, and she just started dancing away as well. And I just thought she's basically a sixteen year old girl. Mm. What a lovely answer. That's my guilty question after so much feminist chat. Um, and a final question. In January this year, you talked a bit, and it may have been a throwaway comment, I don't know, but, but a bit about understanding some of where J.K. Rowling's coming from. And I just wanted to say to you, is that about building a bridge to somebody you think you may have access to because it would be good to build that bridge and you both have the sort of extra credibility no, I, of fame? Um, no, I I know Joe Rowling, so, you know, I've met her a number of times. and um, But there is, I think, particularly the things you're saying, if people transition and then they want to transition back, that's a worry if they feel they've gone to a place and they have done things to their body which they can't get back. But also there's a worry if people are not allowed to transition because some people transition and change their mind. It's a very tricky thing. Is there a magic answer? I don't have it. But the articulation of the problems that we have, if they are not articulated very carefully, they can just trip us up. And most people don't. Most people in in the articulation of it, it, it just it can it can fall into a place where it, where it sounds. Are you meaning this, or does it sound a bit like that? And and this, I think, is the problem that can happen in uh, with people when, when we're talking about these very sensitive areas. So um, I said Joe Rowling isn't uh, transphobic. I don't think she is, but she's worried about uh, particularly, and there could be a number of other things in there, but particularly, and it, it is a problem. If people want to transition, they say, actually, I didn't want to transition. What does one do? But also, as I say again, if people want to transition and they do want to transition, are they do they have to not be allowed to transition because some other people have made a mistake mm -hmm. earlier on? So it's tricky to work out how to get there, how to get there in a perfect way. But we're all given these genetic cards when we're born and we have to play them how we will. And for my personal, uh, in my own personal experience, I, I try to play them as open as I can since I was 23. Um, back in 1985, and I've tried to be open, at least get the conversations going. And I've said that uh, and people can slipstream behind me if they think that I'm heading in a positive direction. So that's what I try and do. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a magic answer for, mm -hmm. you know, some radical feminists saying, you know, there are problems here and we want to push back on certain things. I don't have all the answers, but um, I do believe that all urinals or urinals, as a matter of God, should be thrown out of loos. And we should get over ourselves about the loos because the Romans just used to sit around and have a chat. And then the Victorians made it a bad thing to go to the toilet. I think I think what the Victorians would have liked to have done is said, no one can go to the toilet ever again. And if you think about monarchy, monarchy doesn't go to the toilet ever. Mm. You never hear about them going to the toilet. No, now, it's probably, one throne they don't sit on. Yeah, you, you would never hear the Queen linked with toilets so you just think well they never ever go to the toilet now they must do but it's just not a mentioned thing i expect so, that is the lavatory or the loo um maybe the carsey um no i don't think they ever go <laughs> and so but the, obviously they do but it's just something it's not talked about but in fact it's just a human 
function. Yeah. And if you were living out, if we were living as a tribe, we wouldn't have a problem about it at all. Yeah. But as we've refined ourselves into civilization, we made this a bigger, 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 bigger problem. And now it gets into a problem mm-hmm. with people. And we're all somewhere on the spectrum. There's how we look, there's how we feel, and there's who we fancy. And uh, we should not get so obsessed about it because tigers don't give a monkey. Mm-hmm. And monkeys Monkeys, monkeys don't give a tigers. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I wish J.K. Rowling would use her platform to talk, if she's going to talk about that, to also talk about the fact that a lot of young trans people who are not allowed to transition uh, feel suicidal. And that's a much bigger, bigger, bigger problem, you know, danger-wise, than the few people who might want to transition one way and then the other. But also, what if they do? It's that if they want to transition one way and then they want to transition the other and... That's their journey. That's not for me to be imposing on them what they can do in their life as long as they're talking to their doctors. Young people can't really get anything done, and I think there's a lot of scaremongering. If you do know, Joe, can you think you could broach that conversation about the other concerns that young trans people might have that she is not advocating for? Do you see what I mean? Well, I'm saying there is a problem there. You know, some people want to transition. If you, if you can transition early enough, then your life can be simplified so much earlier mm-hmm. than having to transition <clears throat> late in your life and then putting laws around that that make it safe and possible. And, and it is a complicated question, but I'm trying to help the world to save itself. So I'm going for 7.8 billion people and trying to make humanity great again and saying that everyone should have a fair chance in life that should be the right of every human being in the world mm-hmm. i happen to be trans but it's not the center of my universe mm-hmm. um it's just something like i can play the piano a bit, you know so and i'm not going to wrap myself around the sexuality because if it's a straight person mm-hmm. you know no Again, no one gives a monkey. They're saying, hey, you should get into straight issues and tell about straight sort of straight Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. I'm not asking you to be I, more I trans than you are or more of a trans advocate than you are. You've been amazing. I'm not saying you're saying that. I'm just saying I wish it wasn't something that has to slow you down in a certain way. Yeah. I've, I've I get been it. six years getting to this place and I can't sort everything out. And meanwhile, but there's a thing that needs to be sorted out, which is the 21st century is the coming of age of humanity. And in this century... I predict we will either make it a farewell for everyone or we'll wipe ourselves off the planet. And I think those are the stakes. Mm-hmm. And I think all the QAnon, the extremists, the right wing, the, 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 the nationalism of my country is better than your country, it doesn't work. If you think about it, my country is better than your country, that's just my dad's bigger than your dad. That's from the, from the schoolyard all the way up to a political idea. Mm-hmm. It's rubbish. There's no country better than another country. You might have more money, but it's a better country. Be proud of your country. Patriotism, absolutely. Nationalism, no. Didn't work in the 1930s. Doesn't work now. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about the film? Uh, anything you came to say that you didn't get to say? Anything you think our listeners would like to hear? The film is quite long. Not too long, not too short. Just the right side. It's a, it's a Goldilocks principle. Um, three bears. Goldilocks would have liked it and <laughs> old bears would have liked it as well. And um, uh, No, it works. My brother likes the film. and My brother doesn't like things which aren't any good. So you should like it because my older brother likes it. Okay, what a review. <laughs> he will tell me things are wrong. Just that just a- when and where can we see it? Well, it's on Sky or you can get the Now TV. You can get a week's pass. It's eleven ninety nine, And you can see uh, for that week, you can see a number of things and everything that's going there. It's on the Night Now TV app. It's eleven ninety nine for a weekly pass and you can see it that way from the 26th of March. 
or Sky on general release on 26th General release on Sky if you've got Sky. And if you haven't got Sky, you can get a weekly pass for Now TV for the price of uh, a cinema ticket, which you can't get at the moment because you're not allowed to leave the house. So while you're under house arrest, why not try six minutes to midnight and uh, see this juicy piece of history, uh, which... Eddie and my good friend Kellen, who was in Say My Name. A lot of a lot of my listeners have seen Say My Name, my movie. Uh, so Kellen, who played Kipper, uh, also wrote it. It's a thriller rather than a historical drama. It is it is a thriller that, that sits happily on the eve of World War Two, or unhappily on the eve of World War Two. But yeah, it is a thriller that post, that drives itself from there. Great. Um, and Jim Broadbent's in it. It's a storming cast. You will be gripped. Uh, so go and be gripped and enjoy Six Minutes to Midnight as I did. Thank you so much, Eddie Azard. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for doing The Guilty Feminist. No problem. You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, and my very special guest, Eddie Izzard. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon. The producer was Tom Selinski for The Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Rachel Craftman, Gina DCO, and everyone who made this episode happen, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. Or do I, do I challenge things and do I do the things that I can do as I can do them? Is there a question behind that? Or? Um, it was more me reviewing your film in a very positive way, Eddie, and saying, oh, you know, okay. it got me to feel, it got me to feel like, well, what would I do? Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.